Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Well, to a dedicated plain black coffee drinker like myself, the menu in a coffee shop can be a bit overwhelming, shall we say. Espresso, cappuccino, macchiato, pour over, nitro, java, mocha, cafe au lait, frappuccino, just give me a cup of coffee, thank you. When Starbucks first became popular in the Midwest, which was now several, many years ago, I remember distinctly walking in and walking right back out again after I heard the barista call out something in a cheerful voice like quad venti half-calf breve no foam with whip, two spun to stirred skinny, three pump peppermint mocha for Frank. It took me years to go back to Starbucks after that. And I confess this morning to being just a little bit obsessed with coffee at the moment. Not only because I'm a bit weary, but because I just finished a 10-day cleanse that included, among other things, no caffeine. It was a long time. (laughs) And if you know me, you may know how long a time it seemed. But a cleanse is a physical practice I undergo when I am facing a big change. Something I've done in the past as well as just recently. The big change can be a child leaving home, a new job, or like now, a time of saying goodbye and grieving. It helps me ensure that my body doesn't rely on unhealthy behaviors to deal with loss, and that my mind retains enough clarity to focus on loving and leaving well. Now, trust me, there's a connection. There is a connection between coffee and Paul's treatise to love. And this is it. In the podcast I listened to last week, I heard this word. We have more words to describe coffee than we have to describe love. And I think that's so true. Reverend Terry Ott, who's the editor of the Presbyterian Outlook, reminds us that in the English language, we have, count them, one word for love. But the Greeks had six different words. There's the word eros, named after the Greek god of fertility, describing sexual desire. There's the word philia, describing love toward friends, like deep bonds that soldiers share, or the college roommate with whom we still share our secrets. There's ludus, which is playful, flirtatious, and casual, the love felt on the dance floor of your best friend's wedding. There's pragma, which is long-standing, like long-married couples enjoying each other's company without having to say a word. There's philatia, which is self-love, which can be experienced as narcissism on one hand or as healthy self-care and self-compassion on the other. And there's agape, 
Agape is the love we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. It is radical, unconditional love for others. It is grounded in an ethic to care for all of humanity beyond our differences and despite our immersion in a world addicted to violence. Love giving itself away freely. God's love. Agape is God's love for humankind in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for Christians, agape fills our lives, fuels our lives, and emboldens our call as disciples. The passage from 1 Corinthians is humbling to read and to hear if we are being honest. I'm always a little surprised when a young couple chooses this one for their wedding, not because it's not beautiful, which it absolutely is, but because the standard is so high that after 30 years of marriage, I don't feel like I'm living up to what is in this text. And I always love hearing that and seeing the smiles on their faces and watching as they commit to this incredible thing we call love. But this is not a passage just for marriage. It's not a passage that's just for death. It's a passage for all of us to practice our discipleship, to be these Jesus followers, to have the challenges we have today in, in, a, in a place, in a time in society that is just as divided as it was in ancient Corinth. How can we hope to attain the kind of life where faith, hope, and love flourish over mistrust, despair, selfishness, and outright lies? It's clear in this text that Paul understood agape as the only solution to the Corinthian community's problems. These folks had some issues. You can read about them in the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And in this passage, in this section right here, Jeffrey Jones writes, the Corinthian church was doing real and potentially destructive battle with each other over a number of issues. Paul inserts this passage in his letter not to offer pious reflection on the way things should be, but rather to call the Corinthians to account for their behavior. Everything he says love is not, they are. Everything he says love is, they are not. The Corinthian church was trapped in a cycle of conflict, made worse by those who were envious or boastful or angry or rude or insistent on their own way. And according to Paul, Radical, ethical agape is the more excellent way. It's the way to break the cycle. If you were here last week or tuned in, you might recall that we enter into this portion of Paul's letter just after he explained in 1 Corinthians 12 that every person has gifts given especially and uniquely to them by the Spirit of God and that every body matters. A few examples of those gifts are teaching encouragement, administration, healing, speaking, listening, and working for the needs of others. And these gifts of the Spirit are meant to build up the body of Christ and the human body and are as necessary to one another as a foot is to a leg, an arm to the body, and a head to pull it all together. But as much as our individual gifts and skills are so very important and diverse, there's one universal gift— and that universal gift of the Holy Spirit of God is so essential, it's so foundational, that at the very end, it's the only thing that we will carry from this life into the next. Paul calls it a more excellent way. And it is the gift of love. And you might ask, why is that? Because those three things, they're all good things. 
faith and hope and love? Why this one thing? Why is that the best thing? Well, what use is faith when finally the day comes where we see God face to face? We don't need faith anymore. And what good is hope when all our hopes are fulfilled? All that is left for us to do, all that will make sense in heaven's realm, is to love. So Paul reasons, you might as well start practicing now, friends. And he tells them how. I remember reading transcripts of phone calls from the planes and the Twin Towers on 9-11, as I'm sure you do too. We never forget them. And those conversations, those conversations were not about the things that we fight about in our normal lives. They were not about blaming each other, reminders of what needs to be done, arguing over the politics of the day in those final moments, and in so many final moments at bedsides and hospital rooms, at the moment of death that the person still has the words or a hand that can squeeze, there's only one thing left to be said, and it is, I love you. There is not a single person who regrets saying, I love you too much to their beloved when that person enters into eternal life. Not a single one. It's, it's not possible to regret loving too much. And it's not only at the end of life, but it's at its beginning too. It's at the moment of birth or the moment of adoption. It's at the moment when a child parts to go their own way or when you hang up the phone from a conversation with them. It is spoken, practiced, lived out imperfectly in countless different ways among family and friends. I love you. St. John of the Cross, a Spanish Catholic priest and mystic from the 16th century, had it right when he said, in the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone. Paul claims in this passage that our love should be so big, should be so pervasive that there is not room for envy or boasting or rudeness to gain even a foothold, that our love should be big enough to bear with one another, to see the good in our neighbor to rejoice in the truth over convenient lies. We live in a time where so many would pit us against each other and where bearing with one another is not the norm. We are called to remember we're beloved siblings and a beloved sibling cannot be our enemy. Our enemy is sin and death and the powers of darkness and Jesus Christ has defeated them all. In today's world, we have so much to think about when we try to live big love like Jesus. He often spoke of the need for our hearts to be renewed. And you know the way our hearts go. Even the children know the way our hearts go, the way they turn inside instead of outside, the way they close up instead of open, the way they want to make fences instead of open doors. Some of us have spent decades trying to follow Jesus and live by his grace, and we still don't feel that living up to the kind of love Paul talks about is anywhere within our reach. But there will be moments where we, we look in a mirror dimly now. There will be moments where we, we catch something. We see it. We see this agape love like this, just, just a glimpse of it, like a shadow passing. And, and we know God is indeed doing something in us 
that hard work of getting out those bits of envy and anger and pride and selfishness and impatience that lurk in the depths of our hearts with their hooks in us and sometimes take a lot of work to dig out and replace with the love that we all agree should really be there. That is the work of the Holy Spirit of God who with, is, lives within us. And not only does that Holy Spirit gift us with the gifts that we need to lift up the body of Christ and one another, but with love we need to make it happen. My favorite description of the church was about 100 years after Jesus was raised. So this is a long time ago. Aristides, an Athenian philosopher and a Christian apologist. He wrote the following description of the church in a letter to Emperor Hadrian, and it has survived to this day. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the person who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead and sisters through the Spirit of God. That reflection on what Christian love looked like in the first century after Jesus is a humble reminder of what Christian love should look like today. Because any time Christians become more focused on rules and rituals, on who is wrong and who is right, on who is in and who is out, who is the most Christian, who is the least, Jesus-like love suffers. Because Jesus calls us still to love widows and widowers, to save orphans, to give freely to the poor, to welcome the stranger as sibling, to forgive each other over and over and over again, and to love even our enemies. It is not difficult to understand the words, but it takes a lifetime to live the love. Then Frederick Buechner. Frederick Buechner always makes it deeper than it already is. He says this, the first stage is to believe there's only one kind of love. The middle stage is to believe that there are many kinds of love, and the Greeks had a different word for each of them. The last stage, he says, is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The unabashed eros of lovers, the sympathetic philia of friends, agape giving itself freely, no less for the murderer than for his victim. These are all varied manifestations of a single reality. Because to lose yourself in another's arms or another's company or in suffering for all who suffer, including the ones who inflict suffering upon you, to lose yourself in such ways is to find yourself. It's what it's all about. It's what love is. So how do we intentionally love day by day? We look to do something for someone else's good without expecting a thank you or reward. We assume the best about others and realize everyone is fighting some kind of battle. We ask God to show us in small ways how to share the greatest love the world has ever known. You all know who you are called to love and how difficult that loving can sometimes be. It's often said the most important quality of a church is friendliness. But I think Paul would say it is faithfulness in Jesus-like love. Because in an age where the word is so abused, we remember that the primary component of biblical love is not necessarily emotion, but commitment. 
that warm feelings of gratitude may fill us as we consider all that God has done for us, but it's not warm feelings that Jesus is demanding of us, but rather stubborn, unwavering commitment. To love our neighbor, including our enemies, does not mean we must feel affection for them. To love the neighbor is to imitate God by taking their needs seriously. To love God is to love the neighbor. To love the neighbor is to love God. Yet we all know we will not love perfectly either neighbor or God. We will fall down short again and again. And for that reason, we cling to the cross as a sign that God loves us, forgives us, and promises to hold on to us despite our failing. In the cross, we see that God loves us just as much as God loves everyone else. Our gender, our age, our race or color, who we love, how much money we make, our physical abilities or challenges, our nationality, where we went to school, how we pray, these may make us unworthy in the eyes of some, but not of God. Someone once said, whenever the world draws a line, Jesus steps across to the other side. His love is just that big. Faith, hope, and love remain these three things, and the greatest of these is love, the one universal gift of the Holy Spirit of God, which is so essential, so foundational, that at the very end it is the only thing we will carry that we will need to carry from this life to the next. Paul calls it a more excellent way, the gift of love the one thing we need into eternity. For what use is faith in God when finally the day comes we see God face to face and what good is hope when all our hopes are fulfilled? All that is left for us to do, all that will make sense in heaven's realm is to love and maybe a good cup of coffee. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.